Tits up is both an expression used when things have gone terribly wrong and a phrase coined as a rallying cry to stand up straight, own the stage, and knock them dead. There are few things in this world that can make your life go tits up more quickly than a breast cancer diagnosis, especially for adolescent and young adult women. This podcast is meant to give us AYAs, a feeling of community, understanding, and power, helping us to walk into each day with a feeling of tits up. Hello and welcome back listeners to another week of Tits Up. As always, I am Megan. And I am Sam. Listeners, family, friends, we are joined today by a really, really fun guest to talk about an incredibly interesting topic. Um, This is not specifically cancer related, but this kind of ties into our previous episode about trauma and how to deal with trauma, Um, trauma that we are all faced with whether we know it or we don't know it, um, going through a cancer diagnosis. So today we are joined by the lovely and talented Dr. Sarah Long. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, and she's going to be taking us today through alternative methods um, to therapy to work through trauma. Um, So Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. Sarah, can you give our listeners just a quick little introduction into who you are, what got you into the therapy game, kind of what your focus is and your background? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so my name's Sarah, again. Um, I, so I'm a licensed psychologist here in Denver. Um, I'll kind of, I guess I'll backtrack to when I, how I got into the field. So it was a little bit of a random uh, course, I guess. So I in my 20s, I was up in Jackson doing the ski town thing. And so I had a lot of seasonal jobs and I was fighting fires, forest fires. And then I realized kind of as I hit my late 20s, I didn't really want to do that forever. Um, and so at the time, I thought I would just go back to school. and do, I did a master's in nutrition and psychology um, with the intent to specialize in eating disorders. And then um, finished that up, came back to Jackson, had a private practice, and then decided to go back to school again to become a doctor, doctorate in the psychology. Um, and so through working with eating disorders pretty quickly, I realized that trauma is pretty much at the core of most eating disorders. And that's how I got into eating disorders. Um, I mean, trauma, my trauma specialty. And so I've been working mostly with that overlap of trauma and eating disorders or just trauma clients primarily for, I'd say the last probably 13, 14 years. And then, um, starting in 2001, I got trained up in EMDR. So I've been doing that quite a bit. And then about, I think, two and a half, three years ago, we, a bunch of us, I work at a group practice now, um, a bunch of us got certified in psychedelic-assisted therapy, so it was a year-long training, and so now we're doing that, too. So, um, I, yeah. I am so intrigued by all of the psychedelic therapy, mm-hmm. and, you know, we'll get into this, but I have participated in this, and to me, it was an absolute game-changer, so... Let's let's kind of go through first just what are some of these alternative methods. I mean, you mentioned EMDR, and that's not mm-hmm. a psychedelic treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something completely different. So the ones that come to my mind that we're going to touch on are ketamine therapy, mm-hmm. um, psilocybin therapy, mm-hmm. which is mushrooms, and mm-hmm. EMDR. Mm-hmm. Um, how will you will you explain EMDR to us first? I think that might be a good place to start. Absolutely. And I'll just throw in a couple other ones too, if that's okay. Yes, so please. So when we, in the trauma world, we think about 
interventions that are going to help the whole like system heal. So not just talking through things, it's also rewiring your nervous system. It's helping your brain rewire in a more like adaptive way than things getting stuck in the brain or body. And so EMDR is the gold standard. There's also something called brain spotting that I'm not trained in, but I, I it's similar to EMDR. And I think that's been super helpful for people. And then there's the somatic experiencing, which again, I'm not certified, but people use it to help the body let go of some of the trauma. And then there's the whole psychedelic assisted therapy world, which, which also includes MDMA. So it's MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine are, are kind of the three main ones being researched right now. Um, so that's, so that's sort of the big picture overview. And then, okay, so coming back to EMDR. So what yeah. EMDR is, <laughs> it's used, it's an, um, it's a tool that we use during therapy. So what it does is it helps you basically are holding buzzers or listening to beeping or following somebody's finger back and forth. And that what we call it bilateral stimulation. So it's your brain's basically going back and forth and that back and forth, um, like, I don't know, just, I guess, stimulus stimulation to the brain helps the brain reprocess things, whether it's memories, thoughts, core beliefs, feelings in a more adaptive way. So think of it. So think of it. And I'm, I'm assuming she talked about this last week, but think of it as when something difficult or traumatic happens, that stuff gets stuck in the basement part of your brain. So back in the back part of your brain, and you can talk about it all day long, but it's not going to get reprocessed. So EMDR helps it, the brain almost like REM sleep, like it, cause in REM sleep, your eyes are going back and forth. It helps the brain reprocess things in a more adaptive way. And you're, you have to do it with somebody else that's like a therapist that you trust and it feels safe because difficult material can come up for sure. But once you like, kind of go through a course of it, it, it's dramatically different, I would say. It's been like really promising to pe- see people heal with that instead of just talking about something. So, so I have done EMDR and mm-hmm. the way that I might explain it to somebody who, like me, has no idea really how the brain works. I mean, I'm fascinated by it, but I, I can't really speak to it. In doing EMDR, to me, it felt like, and again, this is probably just like the attorney in me, but it felt like if my brain has all of these filing cabinets, mm-hmm. the files were all over the floor, mm-hmm. and EMDR helped me put the files in alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, re refile where things are supposed to be, so that mm-hmm. your brain can access it when it needs to. It knows exactly where it is, and it makes it less. Um, less visceral, I guess, mm-hmm. when you have mm-hmm. that that thought or that feeling about that thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you were talking about the back of your brain. I think um, last week Blair called it like the reptilian yeah. <laughs> brain, like back yeah. there. Um, and I remember her saying something about like those thoughts and feelings are not coming from a place in your brain that develop words really for what is happening so to try to find a way to pull up a really traumatic um circumstance Mm -hmm. or to pull up a number of circumstances that equal a big trauma right um it's incredibly helpful for that like i remember when i was doing emdr there were yeah I, i remember we were working through um just very basics like going to the doctor's office You know, at the time, it brought up so much anxiety in me, whether it was I was about to get poked again a whole bunch or I was about to have a scan or something. I would sit in the parking lot and have a bit of a panic attack. 
um, mm-hmm. or talking about things. I, I was in a very, very angry part of my brain at that point. Um, and it helped me be able to communicate things without getting overly pissed off. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, gave me for the first time a sense of like I was proud of my body for the first time rather than I was fighting with her. I had been so mad at her for so long for letting me down and doing EMDR made me feel like we were kind of in this together for the first time. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that's such a good example of how it can work. And so that, that brings to mind a couple of things. One is, so you have these like triggering situations that are causing that fight flight response um, and like hating your body or that grief and loss. But, but that's such a perfect example of how through EMDR and a supportive environment, it, those like experiences got processed through and then you sort of came out into the other side where there's more meaning making and peacefulness. And instead of being a panic attack where it's a 10 out of 10, it's more like it sucks. It happened, but I'm okay. And I, I'm going to be okay and I can grow through it. And that's really the goal. I've heard other friends of mine, maybe ones that haven't had cancer talking about doing EMDR for like a really traumatic birth or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just, I, I've heard a lot of people recently start talking mm-hmm. about EMDR. I mean, from my understanding, this has been around for a while, right? Yeah. But like 30, it's just kind years. of being mainstream. How many? Yeah, 35. Okay. So they've been doing research on it for about 35 years now. So it's been a while. Um, yeah, and they, initially it was for more classic, what we call like straight up PTSD diagnosis, like veterans and combat um, survivors of sexual assault, which uh, of course has its, like it's really effective in treating that, but but now we can kind of apply it to lots of different things and it's not just those big T traumas. So you were saying like with like the buzzers or the finger or whatever, mm-hmm. it's, you're, you're trying to engage both the right and the left side of the brain, mm-hmm. right? Because when I did it, I had buzzers in my hands and, mm-hmm. you know, we would talk about what was going on in my head, put me in a place of really deep relaxation picturing Mm -hmm. you know a really nice like to me it was like this um it was a little lake kind of like in michigan i was kind of picturing that and it was really calming Mm -hmm. um and then you just kind of talk about it and the whole time these buzzers are going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth in your hand and you stop noticing them um but what i i guess i mean you mentioned the other ways that people can do it like with the finger or sounds Mm -hmm. in your ear Mm -hmm. Um, but how does that work? Like, what is a little bit of the science behind that? I don't think we actually know why it works. We just know it does. So the theory, I think, is, is that it somehow mimics REM, REM sleep. So when we're dreaming during the REM cycle of our sleep, our eyes literally are moving back and forth. And that's that's our phase of sleep where we're processing material from the day or the week or just whatever. Um, and so the theory is it's it's some somehow mimics that, but as far as what's actually happening in the brain, I don't know. Like we know it works because of the research and just clinically, but we I don't. Besides that, I think we're kind of have these theories, but not totally sure. And then I think, and this isn't like proven in science by any means, but I I think EMDR and then the psychedelic therapies really part of it is just it's um, kind of supporting your nervous system to like do the hard work and also clearing the way for your inner healer to come out and in this innate healing wisdom that we all have. And I know I sound totally woo right now, but I love it. I really, I I really believe it. (laughs) Um, We basically are using these like interventions, these tools to just sort of clear the way to access a person's like innate healer 
and let them guide it, which is what's cool about EMDR. Like you can't, the person's not going to control it. The therapist is not going to control where the brain goes. The brain's just going to do its thing and it knows what to do, which I think is so awesome. Yeah. I, I don't know if that makes There's, sense. No, no, that but, makes, to me, that makes total sense. Sam, yeah. does that make sense to you? Yeah. you haven't yeah. done EMDR before, right? No, I haven't. And what, what does it stand for? If you don't mind saying, I'm good, just curious. Question. <laughs> so it's eye movement des desensitization reprocessing. And so initially oh. it was just the eye, it was just the eye movement where someone was like following a finger back and forth and then they expanded it to the buzzers or the beeping. Um, and then the desensitization part is basically what Megan was talking about. You know, when the anniversary of something like the anniversary of a diagnosis comes up and you're you're feeling a 10 out of 10 of distress, it desensitizes the distress down to a lower number. And then the reprocessing is processing things that are so hard and difficult in a more adaptive way where they're not just stuck in that reptilian part of your brain. So kind of a mouthful though, for sure. So we just say EMDR. <laughs> yeah, no, makes sense. I was just curious. I was like, okay, I almost never hear it referred to as its full yeah. name term. So I was very curious. <laughs> Thank you. So Sarah, what is like the kind of a two-part question? Um, who's a good candidate for EMDR? Um, and then follow up, because I know, you know, this is kind of where my brain always goes. What is the, however you define success in this, what is the like success rate? And is it, people are probably going to wonder if they've never heard of this, is it worth my time? Is it something that I should look into? Um I want to also say that like, this is one of those that does not involve any drugs whatsoever, right? Like it's mm -hmm. just no. you and the person kind of talking and vibing yep. and these things come up because of the EMDR, right? Yeah. 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 Well, there's some, I feel like there's, okay, I'll come. I feel like there's a lot of ways I could go with that. Um, okay. I'll go back to, I'll start with your first questions and then, okay. yeah, we'll, we'll touch on all that. So I would say as far as who's a good candidate, anyone really, truly, there's no rule outs for it. I mean, I think when it's real complex trauma or someone's really struggling with regulating emotion, those aren't rule outs at all. It just means it goes a little bit slower and you have to do a lot more resourcing, which is also part of the EMDR sort of structure protocols that we have. Cause it's a pretty, there's a pretty um, robust framework with it. Like we go through a protocol and we do a lot of resourcing and we do a lot of history taking. So it's not just something you show up to see a therapist for the first time and you're just going to start doing EMDR that day. There's a lot of preparation, um, which is what makes it safe and effective, I think. Um, and so really anyone, like whether it's little T, big T trauma, whether it's anxiety, whether it's just like a really rough core belief about yourself, like I'm not good enough, you could target that. It could be perfectionism. It could be fear flying. It could be performance. Like if you're an athlete and you want to do a lot of visualization to perform better, it, could, it really could be anybody, which is what we love about it. Um, I think the big thing is to make sure you go to someone that's trained in it because someone could say they know how to do the MDR, but unless they've actually done the training, it could get a little dicey because it can bring up a lot of difficult material. Um, okay. That was the first part of the question. I think did that did I answer that? Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. Perfectly. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think the next part is like, what, success. what is the oh. success rate? and how do we kind of define success in something like this? Yeah. So what we look for on a tangible uh, like basis is we always rate, we, we go through and we kind of pick out what we're going to target. And then we rate that thing 
on a zero to 10 scale, like how distressing is this when you think about it, whether it's a core belief or a memory or like a feeling, whatever it is. And then, um, and then what we look for is a drop in that unit of distress. We call it SUD, so subjective unit of distress. And so if someone comes in saying this was an eight out of 10, like the 10 being the worst thing that's ever happened to me, we start to look for it dropping. And sometimes it'll come up before it goes down in a session, but over time, and we're not talking after just one or two sessions, like it does take a little while, but over time we want to see a drop in that, that target. Um, so it so that's what, sorry, I was going to say no, no, I don't even for know. our listeners and kind of just for me to again, understand, because even though I've done this, I don't get how the brain works. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so it isn't that we're trying to get the patient to forget anything, mm-hmm. right? We're trying nope. to get somebody to a point where, of course, we remember what happened, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have that visceral reaction of where you shut down or panic, correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I just exactly. want to make that clear for listeners. Yeah, absolutely. We're not trying to make something go away, and we can't. Like, the brain's not going to just blank out on stuff that's hard for it but or that really impacted you so it's not that yeah we're trying to make you forget or you become a different person it's just to help your brain reprocess it in a more adaptive way so it's not looping on the negative parts of the experience and and then that then that opens up a person to make meaning out of something and we call it post-traumatic growth so there's this like awful awful thing that might have happened but we can work through it with the right supports and then you get to a place of meaning making and you can live your life and not be completely floored by symptoms basically so does that and Sarah, you i i think so okay. um but yeah you mentioned make sure that you find somebody with the right training or credentials mm-hmm. can you briefly touch on what those are um you know maybe not too in depth but just kind of what that training looks like because you said there was a year-long training i remember is that the training you're referring to no for the ketamine yeah that was for the psychedelics okay. so which i'll i can go off on a tangent on that too um i so with emdr there's there's a couple different organizations um that do like certified training so andrea is one of the bigger ones there's also the may maybringer institute that does them but basically, there's level one, level two. They're each three days. So it's not a real, it's not like a time intensive training, but it is like these intensives. And then you have a lot of um, consultation and supervision in between. I, I think sometimes therapists are just new to EMDR and they take on really complex cases. And then sometimes mm-hmm. they can un- inadvertently cause more harm. So I, like sometimes I have to do EMDR with people on their EMDR experiences they had that with another had, therapist. Yeah. <laughs> it's not great. And so I think depending on the complexity, just learning about the therapist um, experience with it, like how they see healing, like making sure it's a good connection. Cause you want to feel like the person is safe and can hear you and there's a good therapeutic fit. So those things are really important. Otherwise I think it could potentially be pretty harmful. So is there something that like, like if I were going to go out and try to find like a new EMDR therapist, they can probably just put anything on their website, like certified mm-hmm. in this or whatever, even if they're not, is there something specifically that people should be looking for? Or just if mm-hmm. it says a certified EMDR therapist? So that that's a really good question. So a lot of people are just trained in EMDR and then it's a whole nother thing to be certified in it. So right now mm-hmm. I'm finally actually submitting my paperwork to do this to get certified. I mean, I could have done it years ago, but I never got around to it. So 
if you're looking for someone that you know has experience in good supervision, you want to look for someone that is a certified EMDR therapist and or someone that's trained, like a trainer, like a trainer consultant is like the next level of expertise. So okay, that's a great question though. So someone that just did the level one training is not going to be appropriate for treating complex trauma or combat trauma or like grief loss. Like grief loss, they might be able to if it's pretty uncomplicated, but I the more complex something is you want someone that has more experience and is hopefully certified, I would say. So, okay. Yeah. And the certification is, oh, sorry. The certification no, no, no. is, through, um, so the certification is through Emdria. So with EM, and I can give you a link to Emdria yes. for the, um, yeah. perfect. so Emdria is like the governing body that does the EMDR certification for therapists. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. We'll definitely link that in the description. Um, I am really excited to go into the psychedelic part of this, but before we move on to that, Sam, do you have any other questions about EMDR? No, I am good. Um, I will be doing some, you know, research and stuff like that because it's definitely interesting. And I didn't know that there was no drugs involved. <laughs> I yeah. was in school too. Um, yeah. I thought that you got into like a relaxed state due to something else you know no drug related and then did the therapy so that's really cool yeah i would probably liken it a little bit to like hypnosis even though i i I hesitate to say that because it isn't hypnosis for anybody listening it's not hypnosis but it's your therapist putting you in this very relaxed state with just talking so you know i've had friends that they're pregnant and they want to go and do this for something else. Um, that's, I would say that that's perfect for them because there are no drugs associated, right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And we can, like, we have been starting to use EMDR with low dose ketamine, which I can get into that like later. So you can combine the two, but you definitely do not have to. Most EMDR therapists are just doing it in the context of a like an hour or hour and a half therapy session. It does, it doesn't, and that's it. And then by the time you're hopefully leaving the session, you've closed it all up and you're back to your peaceful place and you've calmed the nervous system back down. After you've moved through some difficult stuff, you're in a good place leaving. So it's pretty safe. As long as you're a good therapist. Yes. When I did it, it was, um, first time I ever did it, it was, I want to say post-treatment. I think I was still kind of in the shit a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. There were some few things that I was kind of wrapping up. Um, I think I had a few more surgeries coming up just for full reconstruction and everything. Um, but it was a way for me to start being able to talk about whatever my trauma was. I mean, this was all pretty much medically related. The fact that I was grieving what had just happened to my body. I didn't recognize myself in the mirror. I was such a train wreck. Um, and I felt like it gave me the ability to start talking about these things or even communicate better with my doctors. You know, I would shut down with my doctors mm-hmm. a lot. I, I have the tendency to make jokes about things that are not usually funny. <laughs> and I would do that with my doctors. But in having a real honest to God conversation with them about where I was, I wasn't really able to do it very effectively until I started doing EMDR. Um, so I'm just kind of throwing that out there for any of the listeners, you know, no drugs related. It is just a way yeah. to kind of process and reorganize the files in your brain mm-hmm. so you can pull up what you need to pull up and you're not pulling up a bunch of extra bullshit um mm-hmm. when you're trying to focus on just one thing so mm-hmm. i always i to me it just feels like magic i don't get it but it it does work 
Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, okay, let's go into the really fun part of this, the psychedelic <laughs> part of this. And I know that this is where you also get really excited, Sarah. Um, so the two that we've primarily mentioned and, well, no, three, you mentioned mm -hmm. MDMA. But let's mm -hmm. focus first on ketamine mm -hmm. and kind of as we get into this, you know, I definitely want to know how it works in the brain and what people are going to experience through all of that. And for our listeners, I have done ketamine um, in, in a therapeutic setting, like what Sarah is going to talk about. And I credit it a hundred percent with me even being able to do this podcast. I don't think I would be able to talk about this stuff on a very regular basis um, and dive into what I was feeling at the time or be as honest as I am in this podcast without breaking down consistently mm -hmm. if I had not have done ketamine. Um, mm -hmm. Also, though, as a little aside before we really get into this, just a few days ago, it came out that mm -hmm. um, was it Matthew Perry? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he died. And um, the toxicology report or whatever came back with ketamine. And when I first heard that, I was like, I mean, I, I don't know if you can straight up overdose on it. You probably can. Um, but I think what's really important for people to understand is he did that while in a hot tub. Mm -hmm. And you're not entirely in control of what happens to your body when you're in a therapeutic setting like this. So I just wanted to kind of hand it over to you, Sarah, yeah. to make the distinction for people of doing ketamine in a big, comfy, lazy boy with your therapist and really working through stuff versus doing it in your backyard for fun in a hot tub and how that's <sighs> going to probably be the thing that leads to death. And I'm not trying to downplay what happened with Matthew Perry, but I do think that on social media, I've seen people conflating the issue yeah. and saying that it was the ketamine that killed him rather than the ketamine mellowed his entire body out and he drowned because of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So And also what ketamine is, please, after that, because there are <laughs> some of us that are just oblivious to, I know it's a drug of some sort. Other than that, that's as far as like, yeah. well, yeah, let me just, that's, that's my rant, my tangent on that. No, I... I'm just going to hand it over to you and you just kind of explain what is this and how did it get started and how does it work? Yeah. And I'll actually, I'll, I'll pick up with the Matthew Perry thing before I get to all that stuff. Cause I, yeah, we've been, I was getting like text messages from friends outside, you know, the therapist community that were like, what the, you know, what can I swear mm -hmm. on this podcast? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> I they were like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, why, like, how could you be doing this with clients? Like there was, like quite a reaction after that article came out on those articles came out Friday. So I just want to make clear that what we're talking about today is the use of ketamine in a therapeutic setting with medical monitoring. Our model where I work, we're with the client the whole time in the infusion clinics they are being monitored medically the whole time. Um, we're screening people out. So there's a couple of things we can talk about that are contraindications like uncontrolled high blood pressure or seizure disorder. So we're, it's a safe, it's a very safe medicine in the right context. Um, and then I also add psychologically doing ketamine on your own, I think could be pretty traumatizing in itself because it can, it has a potential to bring up some difficult material, which is not bad, but you want that support and that containment uh, there. And then it, it does have the potential, and we'll talk, we can talk about this later, which is the risks, well, there, which again, there's really no risk if you're doing it in a safe environment. But um, 
if you're doing a lot of ketamine, you have uncontrolled high blood pressure, your cardiac, which I think he had a coronary thing too, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does sort of depress your breathing and in high doses, which is my guess would be the high doses. And then also you have some kind of underlying cardiac thing. It's going to, it could cause a lot of harm. So again, you want, when we talk about ketamine in this context, it's in the context of monitoring safety. There's a lot of, you know, we do a lot of screening and a lot of preparation. So we're not just like willy nilly giving people ketamine and just saying hitting good you luck. hard and saying good luck. <laughs> totally. Um, Get in the hot tub. See you later. Yeah, totally. <laughs> good luck. Um, yeah. And I, and I think he had been going through ketamine infusion therapy, but that like the last treatment had been a week and a half earlier. So that it's a pretty short half-life. So that ketamine, the ketamine from the treatment and then fusion center would have been gone the next day. So that wasn't the cause of death. So, and again, I don't want to minimize how tragic it is because I know he really struggled, but um, I think that like you were saying, Megan, there's a lot of conflation now out there. So any questions about Matthew Perry? I mean, I don't even really know, obviously Matthew Perry and I am sad. No, I just thought that it was very interesting that a few days before we recorded this, that came out and, you know, Mm -hmm. I wanted to hit that first because I know that you know, I've got a lot of friends that know that I've done mm-hmm. ketamine therapy and I got texts from them saying like, is this the ketamine, ketamine therapy? And yeah. it's just, you know, it is used as a street drug sometimes and mm-hmm. people will play around with it and throw themselves into a quote unquote K-hole and mm-hmm. all of that. And just like anything in this world, you know, it can be yeah. used for good and it can be used yes. for bad. And if you're, um, if your goal is to be processing trauma rather than you know going out and just having a hell of a night it looks very 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 different absolutely yeah yeah so what does it look like when somebody comes to you and says this is something that i'm thinking about doing or what do you hear from people and say they're a really good candidate for this let's okay i'll can i come back to this in a second i'll circle back to what is ketamine (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Let's start with what is ketamine, because I feel like that's that's probably the foundation. So it's it's been around for 50, 60 years as an anesthetic. So it's been used in the like hospital, ER, surgical world for quite a bit of time. I think it was approved by the FDA in 1970. So it's a it is, again, a really safe medicine in the right context. Um, There's very little contraindication with other medications. So of all the psychedelics, it's the one that has the least contraindication with different medicines. Um, and it's like, it's so safe that they even use it in the pediatric setting. So they'll use it like in children's hospitals for sedation or surgeries or pain management. So it, like it is an incredibly safe medicine. Um, and so, so it's been around for a while. And then I say about the last 20 years, 10 years, they've started researching it for things that are more difficult to treat on the, in the mental health world. So things like treatment resistant depression, that was the initial thing that got researched. And then now they're broadening it out to research with PTSD, um, eating disorders, anxiety disorders, OCD, that kind of thing. Um, and so again, the, the, the research is really bust with robust with the treatment resistant depression. And then we're sort of on the, like the next wave of the other uh, research. Um, and so what it does, it, it's similar to the other psychedelics where they all have this, this similar property where it, and they all have different mechanisms, but basically it's helping your brain be more open to neuroplasticity, so new neural connections. And that's where we see a lot of the change in growth with people. Um, specific to ketamine, 
there's a few things that are, I think, really important to know. Um, so it increases, this is where it gets a little sciencey. So you guys interrupt me if I get, I go off. Get after it, right? get after it. Um, so it increases um, this thing called BDNF. So it's brain, I always get brain derived neurotrophic factor. So I, like it's a mouthful, but basically it floods the brain with that, which helps the neuroplasticity. So the brain be open to rewiring. Um, it, it, it affects the glutamate pathways. So glutamate is something that can cause a lot of inflammation in the brain. And that comes along with things like trauma and depression, and anxiety. And so it down, it kind of blocks the receptors of the glutamate. So it decreases inflammation in the brain, which I think is really cool. And then similar to the other psychedelics, that's that's different than the other psychedelics. So the other psychedelics tend to hit up the serotonin pathways more, but the ketamine hits up the glutamate. And then um, the other thing that it does have in common with the other psychedelics is that it resets your default mode network. So we call the DMN, which I think, Megan, you mentioned you might be reading a book where they talk about the DMN too. So the yep. DMN is our part of the brain that kind of is like how we think in the default way. Like if we're stuck in negative thought patterns or if we're like ruminating on something or like it's just kind of how our brain has operated for a long time. And so if you're stuck, whether it's trauma or depression or anxiety or eating disorders, like it, your brain can kind of get stuck in these loops and the ketamine basically shakes that all up and can reset it, which I, again, is really promising. Like talk therapy just won't do that in a traditional way. Um, so I, I have the metaphor that like we use a lot is, well, there's two things. It's almost like you're power washing the brain and getting all the inflammation out, like pulling up all the weeds, and then you're basically fertilizing your brain. And then from there, it's like, what do you want to plant? So I don't know, Megan, if you sort of experienced that when you went through it, but that's, that's my love, metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I love the way that you put that. Like, just calm everything down. What have your experiences been? Because you said that you watch your clients. Yeah. or your patients, excuse me, like the whole time that they're going through it. What does, yeah. what do people tell you about it? Um, and what are some common themes and how does, yeah. how does their success, I guess, pop up? That's a, that's a great question. So I think, I guess, so this reminded me, I, I kind of missed this earlier, but it is, so the other thing with ketamine is it's a disassociative medicine. And so in the, in the anesthetic doses, you're fully not in your body. And we're aiming in the, in the, like in the mental health world, it's a, a much smaller dose than anesthesia doses, but we're still therapeutic windows when where someone is leaving their body and leaving the room. And so then they, they end up in sometimes different places or the, like a lot of times it's in the universe or they're talking to spirit guides or their ancestors, or they're sometimes there's no visuals at all. And they're just having insights, but they're because they're not connected to their body. There's a lot more freedom, I think for your spirit and your, and your mind to go other places. Um, which sounds like Megan, that's how you experienced it too. So, yeah. Um, and so our model, the way that we work and there's, again, there's different sort of ketamine types of treatment, but our model is where the therapy is really integrated within the treatment. And so I think, especially with trauma and complex trauma, this can be pretty important. If you were going to some ketamine infusion clinic, just for treatment resistant depression, like that could be a really effective intervention. But if, if you have trauma, sometimes it can get kind of scary in there like some and difficult's not bad like we always say that it could be a difficult journey but it's not a bad trip like which I, a lot of times people get scared about having a bad trip and because a therapist is with you in the room not necessarily interacting with you but if you need someone to hold your hand or like tell you like you are okay and you aren't dead because they might be freaking out about it some people like that space and some people get pretty scared 
Um, I think because of that, the therapist is there to ground you and kind of hold that container. That's what makes it really effective. Um, and then as far as like different experiences, I mean, I think a lot of times it is universe. It could be kind of like communing with spirits. It could be just straight up. I've had some clients that just are releasing a lot of some like things somatically. So maybe it's not even visuals or thoughts even at all. Their body's just releasing stuff. So it, it really runs the gamut, I would say. Um, but I think People Megan- do a lot of- emoting like do you see people often like, cry during it or laugh or I I don't I don't know oh, what, what do you see a lot sometimes 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 not it's like it really is such a wide range of sometimes people from the outside look like they're completely asleep and they're very still the whole time sometimes people are talking throughout the whole thing but they're not even sure they're not aware that they're talking they're just kind of narrating sometimes people are crying sometimes there's like yeah a huge catharsis or release of grief um, and so, yeah, it, it just really depends. And we're there on the other side. So when they come back in their body and they're coming out of the ketamine, the therapist is there to write stuff down from their journey. Cause you do a lot of times forget after a little bit what happened. So having someone in the room kind of recording everything that happened can be really helpful, especially if you're talking during the journey, cause you will have no idea what that you're even talking, um, which is kind of neat when you you're like, well, you were here, here, and here. And then sometimes I have no idea where the client is. But you can feel, and this is where it gets kind of woo again. I think you can feel it in the room. So if someone, again, they might be on the outside just very still, but you can feel energy shifts in the room. Like sometimes all of a sudden I'm like, oh, something's happening. Oh, it just got really anxious in the room. And I think it's this energy communication thing. I don't know. I know it sounds so weird, you guys. That is wild. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I, the more I've been doing this, the more I, I, you really can pick up on different things. Um, it's really, really like, powerful. Uh, to be a therapist, too, it's such a sacred thing for us to be able to. So I want to just like keep going <laughs> off on like tons of questions, but having having done this before, Sam, what are, yes, what what are, are, what are you the thoughts that you're having? I want to hear from somebody that hasn't done this at all before. Yeah, um, I guess kind of like you said my question is emdr like your first session you're not going to walk in there and do emdr right is it similar for ketamine because i can't imagine no that yeah so we we go through like so you go through medical intake with our psychiatric nurse practitioner and so she'll clear you so the first step is basically like get cleared medically and so the rule outs are seizure disorders, um, uncontrolled high blood pressure. If you're on lamictal for a mood disorder, that's not a rule out, but we need to taper it off the day before. So there's some like conversation about medication. Um, psychosis is another rule out. So that could really be harmful to somebody. Um, and then we kind of find out why, like what a person's wanting to work on. And then we can kind of tailor from there, like what the protocols would look like. And so Sometimes people come in for a real intensive three-week treatment. So if someone's coming in with um, okay. major depression and suicidal thoughts, they'll be more in the two times a week for three weeks. And just we're just trying to flush the brain pretty quickly, which is what the research was based on. But then if someone's coming in more for like trauma or grief or like loss or um, even just spiritual exploration, then we can kind of adjust from there, whether it's like once a week or maybe we'll do a couple in a really close together and we'll space it out. Um, so we have the flexibility to really tailor it to the person. And then with the infusion clinics that don't have as much of the therapeutic support, they they tend to go the two times a week for a few weeks model. 
but I think there's some variability in there. Um, and then we do a lot of prep too. So that's the other thing. You don't just like get cleared with Adrian, our psych NP, and then just start ketamine next, next week. Like you right. do like one or two prep sessions and kind of set intentions and like talk through what it's like really creating that like safety and containment piece. And then we'll do the ketamine session and then we'll do integration the next day and then talk about how to kind of use that op that window of opportunity in your brain to start making some change. That's a great question. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's, and I guess my other big question is I know it varies per patient cause it's each patient is individual and different and unique, but what would you say the average time of treatment for, let's say not, overly severe you know and not overly simple cases either but kind of like the majority in the middle I'm hoping maybe yeah I I would say I mean you'll start to see effects pretty quickly like after two sessions you'll you, oh. you may start to see pretty significant change for, for like we would really hope to see that and if if we're not seeing any shifts after four sessions the person's probably not a good candidate for it like the the research is pretty good for the like the depression disorders, um, and seventy percent is like the like the efficacy rate. So thirty percent is not okay. help. So, um, and so then for people that are kind of coming in with kind of that middle of the road, like not super severe, I'd say four to six. Um, and sometimes like we'll start spacing them out, and sometimes if it's like real complex trauma, we'll start doing maybe low dose ketamine to start, and then the high dose. We can kind of we have a lot of flexibility in there. But pretty quickly, I would say, like the goal is to like flood your brain, get some like pretty big, significant change going, and then you either go back to your other therapist or you continue on in therapy, or you don't need therapy as intensely, and you can just do boosters. So okay, yeah, it's and I also want to be cautious though because I think with the new psychedelic renaissance is there's a lot of like hype sometimes that this is the magic wand and it's going to fix everything. And if you just go do ketamine or psilocybin, all of a sudden everything will be great forever. And that's, I think managing expectations is pretty important too, because it is hard work. It's, it's, it's intense. It's hard work. It, it can be difficult at times. It's not, it's not always like fun and happy, I would say. So. Yeah. I remember having a number of really difficult ones, mm -hmm. but what was interesting is, or sessions is what I mean by ones. Um, <laughs> But what's tough is it's really hard to explain what it is that, at least for me, what it was that I was working through specifically. You know, I was each time it was almost like I was in a different storybook and I became a different character of that story. And there was something I guess like the number one word that sticks with me is perspective. Anytime I would mm -hmm. come out of a ketamine session or, you know, I'd wake up and start um you know, writing down my thoughts, almost like a dream. So like, it doesn't get away from me. I can come back and revisit it. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, perspective was kind of what I received, you know, mm -hmm. like um, going home, um, you know, you can't drive after that. So, you know, I would have an Uber, my husband would come pick me up. Um, and I remember thinking about things on the way home, things that I was just so worked up about earlier on in the day or, you know, a while ago or, my feelings about my own diagnosis and my body. And um, it's it's not like it made it not a big deal. I know that I, that's not the way that I want to say this because these things are all still very, very prevalent in my life. And I think about them constantly. But it, the pain and the anger was not as associated with that thing that happened. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like, as I was describing my 
you know, my personal experience with EMDR is just that on on steroids. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it it happens very quickly. Um, the effects linger for a very long mm-hmm. time, and if they don't, or if you feel like you need a booster, go ahead and go do a booster. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said earlier, I really, really credit that being um, the reason that I can even do this podcast. In fact, fun fun fact, I remember thinking about this. After one of my sessions, I came home, took a bath. I'm sitting in the bath, just scrolling around on Facebook. And that is the day that Sam posted something on Facebook saying like, hey, we're looking to like, I want to start doing a podcast with somebody. And my brain was finally in a place that instead of just scrolling and being like, I wish her luck, (laughs) you know, I was like, I think I could maybe do this. I think that this would be a lot of fun and hopefully cathartic for other people and myself, but I don't think I could have been there without ketamine treatment. Yeah. What were, what are some, because I mean, I could talk about this for forever, but I mean, we really only have like an hour. I want to try to hit on the MDMA and the psilocybin and how those are similar or different than ketamine and who are really good candidates for that. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, well, any, I guess, Sam, any other questions on what ketamine is or like what it looks no, like? No, okay. I, I think we deep dive that. Okay. I, enjoy okay. <laughs> uh, I think it's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, everything we've talked about okay. thus far, but yes, I agree. I want to go on to um, the other one. MD- right. Yeah. 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 And psilocybin. So first well, we have to stand for because Oh my God. <laughs> I can actually, I cannot do MDMA is a very long chemical. Okay. I don't even, I, I can't. <laughs> well, well, we'll list it. I'll trip up on Google the words it. for sure. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So th- those ones are a little trickier because they're not fully legalized well mdma is not at all so so there's been a lot of clinical trials with mdma and ptsd that are showing such promise and it's such a like as a trauma therapist i have so much hope for mdma like it's like the results are astounding like 70 percent of people in these trials had zero ptsd symptoms at the end which is insane like there's no other therapy that even touches those statistics so so MAPS is credited. They're they're an amazing organization, and they've been doing all the MDMA research. Um, a lot of times with the veteran groups, which is really like I'm so glad that they're the veterans are finally getting the like the treatment that's helpful that they so deserve and need. And so, so the FDA, the applications have been submitted. So they're they're thinking they may have a decision as far as if the FDA approves it as early as August 2024. But we'll oh, see. Wow. So it, it could be soon. It may not be. Like we're kind of all holding our breath on that. So, so, so for 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 MDMA, like I'm hesitant to recommend it for anyone out there because there there may be some really good underground therapists doing it, but it's it, it also has the potential, I think, to do a lot of harm in a setting with somebody that's not acting in good faith. So, so I would say stay tuned on the MDMA. Like it's super hopeful. I can't wait for it to be legitimized, and we're not quite there yet. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's actually, and I won't get too much into it because we can get back to psilocybin, but it's actually in a pathogen. So it's not technically, it's a psychedelic. Like you don't see as many of the visuals or like ancestors or spirit guides kind of thing. It's it, but it's a heart opener and it, 
it floods your brain with serotonin, but it also really opens you up to sort of that universal love and helps you connect. And, and there's, again, it's the same model where there's therapists in the room with you. Yeah. And it's quite a bit longer. It's like six to eight hours versus an hour or two with the ketamine treatment. So it's, it's like, a, it's like an intensive therapy. Yeah. All day long. Are you like, are you like doing talk therapy during it? Sometimes. Or does somebody just kind of hang out and, and trip? <laughs> uh, I think usually it's a mix of both. So okay. a lot of times there is a lot of interact. There's a lot more interaction with the therapist during the journeys for sure. Um, okay. It's not that disassociative compound like the ketamine is. So um, one, one thing that I think a lot of people will question, because I know that I had this question for all three of those, um, mm-hmm. are they, like, can you get addicted to them? And are they okay for people that have had previous addictions to drugs? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think with anything, there's potential for addiction. The way, if you're doing it in a therapeutic setting with monitoring, like, no, because the, the, what's behind addiction is usually trauma. And so the idea is if you can, or, or underlying maybe depression or anxiety disorder. So if you can heal the trauma or the anxiety or the depression, likely that addiction potential goes away. So I don't, did um, Blair talk about Gabor Mate last week at all? I don't um, think so. I don't remember it. So he's this amazing psychiatrist out of Canada. There's a ton of work with trauma and addiction, and he's also pretty big in the psychedelic field. So I'll send you guys some links with him. Please, too. please. Um, but the way that he describes a trauma and addiction is is so beautiful. And he, again, he would make that argument that like if you deal with the underlying reasons for the addiction and connect them with their humanity in the community, they're not gonna. They're, that addiction potential is not gonna be there. There's always a, like an exception to that, but I. Right. That's what we've said. And so, and with that, they're actually studying a lot of these psychedelics for substance use disorders. So there's a lot of um, current research looking at that too, whether it's alcohol use disorder, opioids, like, and again, the preliminary results have been pretty like promising. So that's great. So to be clear, there, some people are out there using these drugs in the right way to get people past their addiction exactly. to yeah. other drugs. Yep. Wow, that's fascinating. That's really neat. Yeah. I can send you some links on that too if you guys want. Yes, please. Um, yeah. yeah. They're doing yeah, they're doing some really neat studies out in Portland at the VA with I think um methamphetamines and then I I think they had a whole bunch like a series before that on alcohol and then it opioids have been studied too. So um okay, so that's MDMA. So again, really promising, not legal yet. I think be really cautious doing it on the underground right now. Um, okay. Just because there are some really scary stories where therapists really took advantage of their clients. And I like it's not like there's oh, we no, hate that. yeah, it's awful. And there's no governing body for underground therapists right now. So again, I'm not saying all underground therapists are like, there, there's some really amazing ones out there. Just be really careful with it. I would say. Okay. Um, and then psilocybin is an interesting one because it's, it's still technically on the underground in most States. Um, so, so Oregon is fully, I think, legalized it for the use in, in uh, like healing centers. Um, and then Colorado just recently decriminalized it. And then we're in the process of getting it approved for use in the medical setting. Um, but they haven't come out with the standards yet. So we're not totally sure what that's going to look like. Um, okay. But again, pretty, I would say it's, it's coming pretty quickly to Colorado. Um, that one's similar to MDMA is that it's a much longer session. You're talking six to eight hours with the therapist. Um, 
I think that some people are doing it like out of country at retreat centers, which is if, again, if it's a reputable retreat center with like good, you know, therapists and healers, indigenous healers, that's awesome. Um, and it, that one is similar to ketamine in that, well, and yeah, similar to ketamine in that it like opens up your brain to new experiences. Like you're a lot more visuals with psilocybin. It's being studied for depression, end of life, um, like trauma, grief, all those things too. Let's go into that real quick. End of life, trauma and grief. Mm -hmm. Talk about, talk about that. And would that be, you know, cause we have listeners that are, you know, they know that they have a limited amount of time mm-hmm. left. How mm-hmm. does, how, how would these help with that? Yeah. So there's been some amazing research out of Johns Hopkins about end of life and psilocybin in particular. Um, I'll, Roland Griffiths, who actually recently just passed away from terminal cancer, had is, is this huge pioneer in the field. And he did a lot of end of life research. That's like, again, the most beautiful, profound thing. And I'll send you some links on him too. Please. Um, so a lot of that is, I think, it's what psychedelics offer as far as spirituality and connecting with something bigger and the source. And I, I think it, there's that perspective piece of it, but I think there's also like potential for really tapping into something that's bigger than us and, and making peace with maybe not being here anymore. Um, again, in the therapeutic context, I think it can be really like, healing. And that has been successful? Mm-hmm. Like people... Yeah get to that point where they're like okay this is you know i mean sucks but at the same time i'm not scared of it yeah yeah and michael pollan so michael pollan his book how to change your mind there's some chapters in there about the end of life research and 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 johns hopkins coming out of there so he he talks about that a lot in his book but is sort of the big book that kind of prompted a lot of this uh it being in the media a bunch so yeah I think that's really, really interesting because one of the, I remember my very first session with ketamine, for example, um, and if, you know, psilocybin gets completely legalized here um, in Colorado or MDMA, you let me know, I will be the guinea pig for that. Like, I was so scared of doing this stuff until I did it. And then as soon as I did it, I'm like, this is, this is nuts. It's mm-hmm. so good. And I feel so much more connected to other people, other things, myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's so much good that comes from all of it. Um, but where was I even going with my question? What was I just talking about? Mm-hmm. End of life. Oh, uh, <laughs> what I was going to say is after that very first ketamine session, when I had that moment, like a tiny moment of panic, like, am I dead? Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't quite know where I am. It led to, well, if I am dead, this is not bad. Mm-hmm. It's actually very comfortable and I like where I am. And I I left that session having struggled for months and months and months with, I have to do everything that I can to make sure that I don't die. I It didn't change that in me. Of course, I don't want to die at this point, but it took that fear mm-hmm. of dying mm-hmm. away from me. And yeah. I haven't had it since. And I feel like that was really profound. Yeah especially going through exactly what it was that I was going through for the past few months. And I think that that could be really helpful if any of our listeners are good candidates for this. You know, they don't have some of the things that you mentioned earlier. Um, I think it was um, high blood pressure and a few Mm -hmm. other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if they don't have that and, you know, you're not pregnant or breastfeeding, I don't know if that even plays into it. But if you are a good candidate, I 
I can't speak highly enough about it. I mean, it really, really has changed how I go throughout my day, um, how I sleep. It has helped strangely with like the nerve pain in my chest Mm -hmm. from my mastectomy. Um, That has, I, I, I mean, does it work with pain? They're doing or research is that just on, like another psychosomatic thing. No, they're doing a lot of research on ketamine and chronic pain and acute pain too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it can definitely help. I don't. I haven't dealt, deep dived into that research, but it's 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 in it's out there. So um, I I just think it's fascinating. It has yeah. it, strangely, and I don't want to mislead anybody. You know, it it isn't like you said a magic wand. It doesn't just make everything better. Mm-mm. But my God, it made a shitload of things better. Yeah, for me, like I. I could finally communicate with people before I did that, um, before I ever did my very first session, I couldn't get through a day of work without, again, legit, like without crying or being in the fetal position in some office that nobody was using, (laughs) you know, just having to take a few minutes. I could not get back into the groove of work. Um, My emotions were all over the place. I had the wrong emotions, quote unquote coming up like I would be angry about something that might evoke sadness before it was it recalibrated mm-hmm. everything that's a word. I love that yeah okay I, I just want to make sure that that sounds the yes. same and I'm not just having like a one-off experience this is no kind of what that's from from a that's lot what of we see. yeah that's what we see over and over and over again and even in the difficult experiences like you were talking about there's so much perspective and peace and just healing that comes on the other side of it. And it's like it, these medicines, whether it's ketamine or psilocybin or MDMA, and there's ayahuasca and there's some other ones out there too, but they do buffer, they just support your system while you while you do the difficult work. And really, again, it all, I know this, again, sounds a little weird to people, but I really believe in that inner healer, like guiding it. Like our the therapist's job is to get out of the way, hold space, stay grounded and like let the inner healer do its thing. And and sometimes you end up talking to the inner healer like you do, Megan. Like that's, it's, yeah. Yeah. So I think, I, th- I think be thoughtful about it. Do your research. And like, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me and I can give you resources too. But I, I'm just so optimistic and hopeful for like the mental health field because we so need something else than what we're doing right now. So I think also depending on the trauma, you know, let's say somebody has had sexual trauma or, mm-hmm. you know, they've been raped or something like that a lot of times you don't want to sit down and hash it out with Mm -hmm. words no and this is kind of like a bridge where Mm -hmm. you don't have to do the regular talk therapy although you can I mean you mentioned like ketamine lozenges to still also do that's a whole nother (laughs) yeah that's a whole whole other episode I have some yeah yeah that one's a little different but But it tends to kind of act as a bridge part two yeah (laughs) yes but for people that don't really like regular talk therapy, or maybe it hasn't been helpful, this is it's kind of a bridge and it gets you right past that. And your brain is doing the tough work itself. Yeah. Again, lasting, profound healing is what I've seen. Yes. So yeah. I don't know. I I cannot recommend it highly enough. <laughs> and any any new things that come up, I'm now just like, just take me, just let me <laughs> Let me just vibe out with these other things. Um, you know, I have no desire to be going out and going to parties and raging no. with these things. That's not at all what this is. And, you know, what would you say to people that are nervous about this? Or they say, I don't I don't want to even mess with drugs. Or, um, you know, I mean, do you hear that often? 
We do. Yeah, we do for sure. I think we would never force someone into doing it. Of course. I think that you can listen to that nervousness and just really talk through it with the therapist. And I think, again, there's different models for someone that's really scared or has a pretty big trauma history, like doing it in the context of supported with a therapist, I think is probably going to be more productive and feel a lot better. Um, but, but that's something we talk through. Like we would never just say, don't get, don't be nervous about it. Let's talk about what you're worried about. So, right. Yeah. yeah. Any, any final thoughts? Cause I mean, we're, we're kind of at the point where we start to wrap up and this has been giving me just more and more ideas for future episodes, mm -hmm. um, especially updates as things yes. tend to get more researched and um, legalized in different mm -hmm. places. Um, but any, any just final thoughts about any of those in general or using these alternative methods, whether with the use and the help of certain drugs or, you know, EMDR, what would you say to people if they are thinking about doing this, especially if they don't really like therapy in general? I know a lot of people, especially from the Midwest, <laughs> that say they don't like therapy. So, you know. I would say, I think that it's something worth considering because it's not like, it's not typical therapy, how you envision it. Again, where there's, it's a profound healing, potential for profound healing. Um, I think it, I just, I don't know. I feel like I have lots of final thoughts and I don't want to go over time too much, but I think, um, there is no overtime. You just tell me all your final <laughs> thoughts. I think, I think again, just make sure you're connected to the therapist and feel like understood by them. And you feel like they're not crossing boundaries and you trust them. Otherwise it's not going to probably be as helpful. Um, I think doing it in a, a monitored environment is really important. And if, if you have that container and the safety and the sort of a lot of prep going into it can again lead to like sustainable real change. And I, again, I know I keep saying again, but that to me is what's so hopeful about this um, because especially with trauma, sometimes just talking about it a lot of times, most of the time it's not going to help. And so looking to these alternative or adjunct interventions can be really, really game, uh, game changing. So um and I also would say everyone has the capacity to heal. Like I hear that a lot. Like I'm too broken. This isn't going to get better. There's no way it can. And it, it can and it will. We just have to help you access your own inner healer to get through the next kind of phase of like recovery or healing or however you want to word it. So, yeah. I'm I hope so that makes glad sense. That you just said that. It, it, it does. It makes total sense to me. And I remember saying something similar before doing ketamine that, how is this ever going to be okay? You know, I mean, this is what it is now. I understand that, but it's not okay with me. And I'm still so upset and so angry and I don't have the right words for things. And my perspective was very, very, very different than it was after I think just two or three, I almost said episodes, two or three um, <laughs> like sessions. Yeah. yeah. But two or three sessions and I was looking at everything so much more differently. Again, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't, it doesn't make something better or worse, I don't think, but your brain and how it tackles it. I think we get into ruts, yes. you know, and we have yeah. the way that our brain tends to work. Yeah. And this kind of throws you on the path less traveled. Yeah, yeah it shakes it say. up. Yeah, absolutely. It shakes it up. Yeah. And all of a sudden now you see all of these different ways that your life is going and mm -hmm. ways that you can change that. And, you know, it, 
to me it was it was incredibly spiritual um mm. i'm not religious i'm not religious uh, but it was incredibly spiritual for me and gave me my sense of self back my yeah. sense of autonomy i felt so vulnerable and that is not a feeling that i'm comfortable with but i felt so vulnerable going through cancer treatments um and who am i now you know, I feel like I'm a completely different person, but who else am I other than Megan? But now I'm a broken Megan. I'll never be the same again. And that was just so overwhelming and so dark. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think I said in a few episodes ago, I was hoping prior to being diagnosed to get off of my antidepressants. <laughs> and then this happened and we kicked them up, um, you know, in, into high gear. And this ketamine specifically, but I'm sure the other ones, um, especially depending on who you are and what your body reacts with. But for me specifically, EMDR and ketamine have been a game changer. Yeah. I, I'm doing well at work. Um, I have time and space in my mind for mm -hmm. friendships and, you know, my relationship with my husband. Um, all of these things have tended to get better. And, you know, it's, like you mentioned, it's not a magic wand, but shit, it really feels like it to yeah. me. Yeah, I agree with that. I want one last point. I want everyone to hear this also is that if you don't have to have like a real big thing that you need to work, like you want to work on to, to benefit from psychedelic therapy or EMDR, like I, I think sometimes people feel like, well, my trauma is not as bad or there's like this comparison game in our head. And so like if you're if you're feeling stuck or you're feeling burned out or you're feeling like you can't shake the anxious thoughts or just overall you don't feel connected to yourself or the world around you like that's like all included in the healing potential too it doesn't doesn't have to be what we deem as like big t trauma or ptsd like there's a whole bunch of stuff in there too that can really help so i just wanted to throw that in there cuz i hear that a lot too i love that i'm glad yeah. that you did throw that in all right. So like we said, this has kind of given us ideas for future episodes. I am so grateful that you came on today, Sarah, Thank to talk to us about me. this. Because this is an this is an area that people don't know a ton about. And I think they should. <laughs> so here we are. Thank you for having Sam, me. Absolutely. Sam, do you have any other thoughts, any other questions? Um, Sarah, thank you for educating me. I'm sure I'll have <laughs> They list for the next time you're on the show. <laughs> have to questions come. Sure. <laughs> well, I'm happy to come back anytime. And thanks for having me. I it's been an honor to be here. So thank you so much. And We're I was so, so nervous. Excited. And you guys did. You guys made me feel not as nervous. So thank you for that too. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, the thing that I love about this is we're all just us, just trying to get by, just trying to do a podcast. Let's figure it out together. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Absolutely. So to kind of close out and catch me on this, Sam, I want to make sure that I hit all of these. But for our community, if you want to help out, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, X slash formerly Twitter um, <laughs> and TikTok. We are on all of those now. Um, it's also incredibly helpful if you would follow us and like slash subscribe um, to our podcast on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, any of that, please follow us, leave reviews. Um, also, what's very exciting is we are now on YouTube. So please click and subscribe to that. Leave us reviews on that. Let us know 
what we're doing well, what you like. Give us different ideas for future episodes. If you would like to be on an episode, please tell us. Um, we also have a phone number um, that will be below. I'm going to link to all of that. You can give us a call and communicate with us and let us know what would you like to see? What did you not like? What do you like? Um, we really want this to be a community for all of us where we feel seen and heard. And, you know, your your time is valuable. So we really appreciate you spending your time with us. And we want to make sure that we're giving, giving the people what they want. Um, and then I would just say as kind of a closeout, you know, we are around the holidays this can be a really, really tough time of year. This is usually where you see people wrapping up the year and sending out their Christmas cards and telling everybody all of the things that they've accomplished in this past year. And sometimes it is enough to just fucking survive. Sometimes that is enough. Um, so make sure that you do the things to take care of yourself. And always, listeners, tits up. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tits Up. We'll be back next week, Thursday, and every Thursday after that. Quick reminder again about how you can support the podcast and help us grow this vibrant community that we are creating. First, whether you are listening to the show or watching us on YouTube, please click the subscribe button and leave us a review. Also, send the show to a friend or a specific episode that you really enjoyed. Second, please follow us on all of our social media platforms. All links are below in the description. Or if you are an elder millennial like myself and you would like to call us and leave a voicemail, you can reach us at 720-892-6669. We want to know if you would like to be a guest on the show or if you have ideas for upcoming episodes, thoughts, comments, concerns regarding past episodes, we would love to hear from you. This podcast is for all of us, and we cannot do this without you. Also, please remember, we are not medical professionals, and we are never giving medical advice. Everyone's experience with cancer is very different, and just because we did something one way does not necessarily mean that that's how you should do it. If you have any questions about your health and well-being, please contact your doctor. Everyone take care, and until next time, tits up.